All right, well, good evening, y'all. Um, it's great to see everybody here tonight on this uh, really, really cold and rainy night. Uh, I think my hypothesis, I knew this would go one of two ways. Either it'd be rainy and it'd be cold and it'd be wet and nobody would show up, or because most of you skipped class today, you're like, you know, I haven't been out of the house yet. You know, I can't just keep watching the same show over and over again. I'm going to come to Awaken tonight. Um, y'all, I'm glad that y'all are here tonight. And in all seriousness, I hope that... Um, that if you've gotten to be a part of this series, we're getting to do a series called Misconceptions. And we're just looking at common misconceptions that we have about the faith, about Christianity, and that we may even hold as Christians. Um, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the misconception that does, does God only love you whenever you're obedient? Or does he love you more when you're obedient? And we answered that question. Then last week, we looked at the, the phrase in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus says, Judge not, lest you too be judged. And we looked at it and said, is it really true that you aren't supposed to judge people? Is it really true that people aren't supposed to judge you? And we looked at that misconception and what Jesus is actually saying there. Um, they're on the podcast. If you want to go listen to those, um, I'd encourage you to do so. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at misconceptions on assurance. Misconceptions on assurance of salvation. And whenever I, I say assurance, I basically mean this. is to have assurance in your salvation is to have reasonable confidence that you are saved. To have assurance of salvation is to have reasonable confidence that you are saved, that you are a follower of God, or that you are born again. And so if you would, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, so you're pretty much in the very back of the Bible, apart from a few books. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible with you, or if you're looking on your phone, um, or anywhere, we'll have it up on the screen if you need that. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking in 1 John and we're going to look at basically how can we understand what it means to be assured of our salvation. And the whole reason this is a misconception is it fights against this. I've heard this, maybe many of you have heard this, and maybe many of you base your salvation in this because this is what we hear. I've heard plenty of people say, I know that I'm saved because I prayed a prayer at some point in my life. I've heard people say, I know that I'm saved because I've been baptized. I've heard people say, I know that I'm saved because I'm a member of the church or because I go to church or because, you know, I don't do bad things because I do good things. And while those things aren't bad, those things aren't wrong, obviously I'm not saying anything against those, but what I am saying is assurance of salvation is not based in those. It's based in something different. And in 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? One thing I want to throw out First and foremost is this. You see him talk about, and multiple times, and, and really throughout, this idea of being born of God. If you see in, in, in Matthew, I mean not in Matthew, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wants to know how in the world can he be saved? How can he be saved? How can he go to heaven? And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are born again. There's something about being born again, this idea of being born again that relates to the faith. And so whenever I ask, how do you know that you're saved? I'm going to use it this way. How do you know that you are born again? Before we jump in, I want to say two things first. First, does God want you to know? I've heard some people say 
There's no way for you to know. God doesn't want you to know. This is something you just have to guess. Does God want you to know? Yes, he wants you to know. You can look in the same chapter. 1 John 5, look at verse 13. It says this. John says, I write these things to you, these things being this chapter from verses 1 through 12, but also this whole book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want us to do guesswork. God wants us to know that we are saved. So the question is, is how can we know? Once again, there are some camps that say you can't know. There's some that say there's no way to find this out, but God's word gives us something different. 2 Corinthians 13.5, I'll have this up on, on the screen. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So what we see is two things. One, we are to know. We can know if we have assurance if we have salvation. Secondly, there's a way to know, and it's to examine yourselves, to test yourselves. And the reason that we're looking at 1 John is 1 John is a book about assurance. From beginning to end, literally, this is a book about assurance. And what you're gonna see is throughout this book, there are three common themes that show up over and over and over again. And they're these themes. One is belief, second is love, and third is obedience. Belief, love, and obedience permeate this whole book chapter two three and four you literally can't read them without going man is he saying the same thing over and over and over and literally throughout this book belief love and obedience are the core of what it means to be born of God one of the things that you'll notice about these as well is belief love and obedience they never show up apart from one another If you really have belief, then it will show up in love and obedience. If you really have love, it'll show up because of your belief in obedience. If you really obey, it'll show up in love because of your belief. Literally, these, you cannot separate them. I mean, just think of the idea that if you take one of these away, something is missing. I like to think of it like this. I like campfires. I enjoy fires. I enjoy that because of one main reason. I really like s'mores. I don't know anybody that doesn't like a s'more. I mean, literally the name is based out of wanting some more. Some of your mind just got blown. S'mores is based on this idea that it's so good you just want more, right? Well, a s'more is comprised of three main parts. It's the graham cracker, it's the Hershey's chocolate, and it's the beautiful marshmallow, right? Like the marshmallow is everything. If you burn it, you're done, you know, or unless you're weird and you like that sort of thing. But, but you know, like, like these three things are what constitute a s'more, and if you're like me, if you've ever been to a campfire, eventually one of these is going to run out. For us, it's usually the marshmallows because we're trying to peg people with them or I'm just eating them constantly. But whenever you lose the marshmallow, all you have is a graham cracker and chocolate. And at best, that's a Teddy Graham. That's not a s'more, right? <laughs> like if you lose something else and you end up just with chocolate and marshmallow, you get the Easter or the Christmas good, you know, the bunny or the Christmas end of the good candy or whatever. If you end up with a graham cracker and, or I guess just chocolate and, wait a minute, what, am I, what do I have left? Marshmallows and and graham crackers, I don't know what that would even make, but it doesn't make anything. That's not the point. The whole point is this. If you lose one of the ingredients, you no longer have a s'more. It just isn't. It can be something else, but it's not a s'more. And while that's a silly example, y'all, these three things show up over and over and over. And these three things are what you must examine and test yourselves in to see, are you born of God? And so many of you may roll your eyes whenever I say this, but tonight we're going to take a test. You skipped class, so now's the time for the test. We're going to take a test. We're going to look at this, specifically at what he says in 1 John 5, 1 through 5, and see what are the questions he's begging of these three things 
And more so, how can we look at them in light of knowing assurance of our salvation? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight, God. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together, Lord. I, I pray that as we come to this text and as we talk about assurance of salvation, which is a very touchy subject, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds. We, we have people in here who have this misconception. I don't doubt it, Lord. I lived with this so much of my life until I was 22. This misconception permeates the South. And so, Lord, help us see rightly. Help us evaluate ourselves rightly. Help us examine ourselves rightly. And as you tell us, help, you, help us test ourselves tonight and examine ourselves to see if we are of the faith. I ask all this in your precious and holy son's name. Amen. So once again, the test that we're going to look at is this. Have you been born of God? And we're going to look at three different things. The first one is the basis, and the next two are going to be ways that they're manifested. Are going to be like, basically, you can examine your life and see if these things are present, then you know your belief is real, essentially. So the first question is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Question one is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? 1 John 1, verse 5. I mean, 1 John 5, verse 1 says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So to put simply, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you have been born of God. Everyone, everyone who believes this, this is the case, right? And this idea of belief here isn't just this one old-time belief. This is an active belief, someone who believes this. This, this takes over their life. This has an action. It's an action word that has a basis and a bearing on our lives. But what I want us to look at is, is notice how he says, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Christ. You see, there's something, all of us, we, we've heard Jesus' name be, be Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ, Christ wasn't originally a part of his name, right? Jesus is his name, but he is the Christ. Christ comes from an Old Testament concept, an Old Testament word that means anointed one. It means the Messiah, and all throughout the Old Testament, there's this cry for this Messiah, this anointed one. There's, there's signs that are given for what this person would look like and what they would come and do. To put it simply, we would say it's the gospel. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you believe in the gospel. You believe that Jesus is Savior. He came and he showed us that we are sinful man. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead three days later, defeated sin, defeated death. And now he is Lord over our lives. The gospel, that's what it means to be the Christ. But what I want to do tonight is I want to take you and really talk more specifically about what this means that Jesus was the Christ. Because whenever you look at it this way, you'll see how it permeates love and obedience and how if we really do believe this, it will take hold of our lives in love and obedience. So look again at verse 1. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Then he talks for a while and then verse 5, he caps it off again. Verse 5, he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We see here, he says, believe that Jesus is the Christ, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. What's neat here is the way that John actually stacks this is he goes back to something that happened in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16, there's this time or this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, they say that you're Elijah. They say that you're a prophet. They say that you're a great teacher and whatnot. And he says, who do you say that I am? And if you remember, Matthew 16, 16, Peter says something back, back to, to God. He says this, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living 
God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Whenever he calls him the Christ, this is what it means. It means he is the prophet, the priest, and the king that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He was the prophet, he was the priest, and the king that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And we usually sum these up in a way of calling Jesus Savior and Lord. But I want you to see why it's important to understand him as the Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king who is to come to take away the sin of the world. The first thing is this. Jesus is the prophet. The role of a prophet was this. They would go to God and they would get a message from God and then the prophet would go to the people and deliver a message. So in other words, they would take a message from God and they would go and they would deliver this message to the people. And Jesus, being the prophet for us, has a message from God to us. And as the prophet, God brought us the message of salvation. And I'll have this even on the screen. As prophet, Jesus has given us the information necessary for salvation. I love the way several guys put it, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and then a few other people say it like this. Jesus, as prophet, came to save us from the ignorance of sin. Jesus came and he had a message, and his message was repent and believe. And the question is, is why, why repent? Jesus' message was to let us know that we are sinners. We are indebted of him. We are in dire need of someone to come and save us. But the reason Jesus had to come and proclaim that is nobody wakes up one day and goes, man, you know what? I kind of suck at life. I need a savior. Like nobody does that, right? Typically, we rely on ourselves. Typically, we look to ourselves. But Jesus coming as prophet, he has a message that he brought to us. And that message is found in the gospel that we are sinners and we need a savior. And so the reason that I bring this up is calling Jesus Christ to say he is the prophet who had a message to come to us, who had a message for us. To make that personal is to say, do you believe what Jesus has to say about you? Do you believe that Jesus, what Jesus says, that we are sinners, that we are are helpless in our own state, that we need someone to save us? Do we listen to the message of Christ? Do we listen to his words? Do we believe him when he says that we need him? As the prophet, Jesus brought us the information necessary for salvation. As priest, he did something different. See, the prophet represents God to a people, whereas the priest does the opposite. A priest would represent people back to God. You know this from the Old Testament. The priest would, would represent the people by sacrificing for the people to God. He would sacrifice or he would also do what we call interceding. He would go and he would take the message from the people and he would go and he would talk to God. He would intercede for the people. And we see Jesus did this for us as well. So first we see that Jesus brings us the information necessary, but as the priest, Jesus makes the payment necessary for salvation. Once again, Lloyd-Jones is helpful with this. He says, we need him as priest to save us from the guilt of sin. As prophet, he saves us from the ignorance of sin. As priest, he saves us from the guilt of sin. And what this means is this, is that Jesus came and paid the ultimate sacrifice in our place. Jesus came, and one of the reasons we call him Savior is because he didn't just bring the information necessary. He provided the means by sacrificing himself on the cross for our sins. And so as prophet, he had a message he brought for us. As priest, he represented us by dying on the cross for our sins and reconciling us back to God. And so while the question of prophet is, do you believe what he says? Do you believe his words? The question about him as priest is, do you fully place yourself under the payment of sin that he paid for you? Do you trust that Jesus Christ 
paid the ultimate sin for you? Do you trust that you cannot work your way to him? Do you trust that your sin is the reason that he was on the cross, but also that he died for your sin? As prophet, we have to believe what he says. As priest, we believe what he did. And we believe what he says about what he did for us. And then there comes the third. And this is the one that I believe gets, gets most overlooked. So we have prophet, we have priest, and then Jesus is the king. Whenever we say he is the Christ, that means he is the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. The king basically is this. He represents the Lord over all the earth, and he's the one who rules the kingdom of God. So while he first gives us the information necessary of salvation, then he provides the means for salvation. Here is where he gives us the power to live in light of our salvation. Once again, I love how Lloyd-Jones says this. He goes, while he... he he came and saved us from the ignorance of sin. He came and he saved us from the guilt of sin. As king, he saved us from the dominion of sin. And y'all, I'm going to tell you, y'all have heard me say this before plenty of times, that, that we are in a culture where Jesus as king or Jesus as Lord is minimized. We don't think of him as Lord. We don't think of him as king. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I believe that Jesus is king? The question is this, do I live in submission to his word? Do I not just believe in him as savior, as the prophet and the priest, but do I believe in him as the king, the one who rules all? Do I really want his will for my life? Do I really want things to happen on earth as it does in heaven? Do I really want God's kingdom to come here to earth? Essentially, do I want to live for Jesus? Are you living for Jesus? As king, this is what he came to do. Once again, we oftentimes narrow this by saying he is savior and he is Lord, which is right, but to call him the Christ is to say he is the one that was talked about in the Old Testament. He is the one that was told that would one day come. And the question is, is do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus is Savior? Do we believe that he is Lord? And if we do believe, this will result in action in our lives. And what John does now is he says, if you believe this, here are your two tests. Here are the two evidences. Are these in your life and if you believe, they will be. But if they're not, then you might want to really reconsider. So have you been born of God? The first question is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? The second question is, do you love God and the church? This is evidence number one. Do you love God and the church? Look at 1 John 5, verses 1 and 2 again. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Then here what he says, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Essentially, he says this, if you love the Father, then you will love the church. And interestingly enough, he takes it a step further and he says, the proof that you love God is that you love the church. The proof that you love God is that you love the church. Basically, what he's trying to say is this. He's trying to use a very logical argument. He's saying, if you don't love your brothers and your sisters, how can you claim to love the Father? Now, for us, this logical argument sometimes is faulty because we're like, I love my parents, but my siblings I'm very unsure about. But this is the logic of his argument, is if we can't love the people that we can see, our brothers and sisters in Christ, then how can we claim to love God? And honestly, it almost seems backward. You would think if you love God, proof that you love God is that you love other people. But he says, the fact that you love other people is proof that you love God. God. And the point is this, is love for God and love for others are so intertwined that you can't separate them. Love for God and love for others are so intertwined that literally they almost are considered synonymous in this passage. 
And you see this whenever Jesus is asked in Mark chapter 12, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says this. He says, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. These cannot be separated. And y'all, I don't know if you've heard this, but I definitely have. I've heard people say, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just not really about the church. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just real skeptical of the church. Now hear this. You can't claim to love Jesus and not love his bride. You can't. Let's just imagine this. Imagine you were to come to me and you were to be like, Merrick, bro, I love you. Some of you are like, I don't even know you. But let's just say you came to me and you're like, man, I love you. I love you a lot. You're bald, that's okay. You got a cool beard, I'm cool with that. Like, I love you. But I just want you to know that your wife, I'm kind of indifferent about. I'm not really sure how I feel about her. A few times I met her, kind of freaked me out. It's whatever, no big deal. Like, I'm cool to hang with you, but, you know, I'm, I'm not really about her. Now, I use this scenario because usually it happens opposite if it happens at all. But the whole point is this. What would I say back to you? I'd be like, if you don't love my wife, then you don't really love me because what I love, she's about. And I love what she's about. And if you say you love me, but you don't love her, there's something wrong. Obviously, you don't really love me if you don't love her. And this is the logic that, that John is using here, is if we say we love God, if we say we love him, we will show this love in our lives. He puts this in other parts of 1 John. 1 John 4, 7 through 12, he says this. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been, notice again, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Notice the belief aspects that lead to love. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Literally right there, he says this, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In this verse, you can see prophet, priest, and king. And he says, in light of this, if, if Jesus loved you this much, you also ought to go and love others. He says it like this in 1 John 3, 16 to 18. By this, we know love that he laid down, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. First John says there is zero separation between believing in what God has done for you and actually loving your neighbor, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't claim to love God if you don't love your brother and sister. And it's not just some, some fantasy type love. He, he says, don't just love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do it, love them, be there for them. And so the question and the test for us is, do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I love my local body of believers? Do I love them? If my life were to be examined and tested, what would it say about how I feel about people who follow Jesus? 
I can't say I've been born of God if I don't love the people who also have been born of God. The first evidence is how do you love God and how do you love other people? Have you been born of God? The first is this, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? The second is, do you love God and the church? That's evidence number one. Evidence number two is this, do you obey God's commands? Do you obey God's commands? Look at 1 John 5, and we'll look at 2 and 3 again. It says this, by, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. One of my favorite passages of scripture on this, and to me one of the most challenging, is you find this in 1 John chapter 2, where he talks about this previously, and he says this, 2, 1 through 6. Once again, notice the belief aspects that lead to obedience. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Notice you find belief, love, and obedience even here. And then look at this. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John 13, 35, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples, by the way that you love one another. By this, this is the distinguishing characteristic, the identifying mark of a believer is loving and being obedient in this, obeying God and living for God and living like God. But we have to understand this. This is not some forced obedience. This isn't some, well, because I'm a Christian, I guess I got to do these things. Notice he says that this obedience is not burdensome on you. I want you to think of it like this. You're going to have to use your imagination. Imagine that you're going to read a book. You're really going to have to use your imagination for some of you. I want you you to imagine this. Imagine that you're going to read two books. I had to start slow before I got you here. Imagine that you're going to read two books. Now, let's say one of them is you're in British literature class. You know, this is like the Antichrist on steroids, right? Like the British literature class. You get this big book, this massive book, if it's anything like whenever I was there, and you had to read just an unfair amount of pages per week before you came back in, which is why I took this class three times, British literature. So anyway, let's just say that you are given an assignment, you have to read this book. Now let's say that you get a chance to go, and you have... Any option of any book you want to pick out and you want to read. Once again, for some of you, this is really having to use your imagination. But let's just say you get another book. You get to choose whatever you want to read about. I mean, I don't care if it's a Sports Illustrated magazine or whatever it is. You get a book of whatever you want to read about. I want you to imagine you read both of these books. What would be the difference in the way that you read the two? So I'll give you scenario number one. You give an assignment where you have to read the book. Let me tell you what you do. You read the book, right? In quotations, you read the book. That means you use spark notes, you got friends, you got papers that you find online that somebody read and kind of tells you this. You try and find any way you can to get information about the book. And if you do read the book, you may do like me. Like I'd be like, all right, I'll read the first sentence of every other paragraph and maybe I'll kind of get the idea. Right, like you do what you have to do just to get by. You make it as easy on yourself as you possibly can because you really don't want to do it, but you're doing it because you have to. Now go to book two. 
Let's say this is a book about something that you really want to read about and you really want to know. Now, how do you read this book? You read it very differently. If you're like me, you'll read it with a pen in hand. You'll read it and you'll underline things that, that really stand out to you. You might read it slowly. You might read it very meditatively. Or you might actually, after you read a chapter, you might go back and relook at the things that you've underlined to look at it again. And notice the way that you would read these two books would be completely different. One of them would be a burden. The other would be a delight. One of them would be because you have to. The other would be because you want to. And y'all, what we see here is there are people, and we struggle with this in some ways, being obedient because we are supposed to. Well, I'm not going to go and do that at that party because I'm not supposed to. Well, I'm not going to go and be a part of this because I'm not supposed to. Well, I'm not going to have sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend because I'm not supposed to. Or I'm not going to miss church because I'm supposed to be there. There's a difference in obedience that's burdensome because you have to versus obedience that is a delight of your heart because you want to. And this is the difference really that he's talking about here. The commands of God are not something that are going to strap us down. If anything, they're going to free us. Y'all, this is why using the idea of a rebirth is so good, of being born again is so good. Because whenever you're born again, you have new desires. You have new delights. You have new things that you want to do. You have, you have new pleasures that are higher than your own. You now delight in God instead of in yourself. You now delight in the things of him instead of yourself. Now, this isn't perfectly but you do. And what I want you to see is he takes verse 4 and he even sheds more light on this. Verse 4, he says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. It is our faith. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. When he talks about the world, what, he's talk, what is he talking about? He says that, that we have overcome the world. What does that even mean? Well, once again, 1 John 2, 16, he gives us a definition of what he's talking about whenever he says the world. 2, 16, he says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so you say, what's in the world? What's he saying whenever you can overcome the world? Y'all, in our natural state, we live for the things of the world. We live for the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. A more helpful way to put it, desires of the flesh is, is we live for things that please us and make us feel good. We go after things that make us feel good, whether that be lustful pleasures or something along those lines, or whether it be body image or, or feeling good about how we look. We run after these things in our natural state. That's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes is whenever we run after things to have something. It's this idea of wanting to get possessions. While the first is pleasures and passions, this is about possessions. It's to get all you can, get all you can. And we come into this world wanting things and wanting to have things. And the last is the pride of life. It's kind of the thing that really makes it all a mess. It's the desire to be somebody. It's the desire to make a name for yourself. It's the desire to have this position or this status or to be known. And simply what he's saying is whenever we're followers of Christ, we now have the ability to overcome the world. What he's saying is we now don't have to run after the lust of our pleasures and passions anymore. We now don't have to run after the lust of possessions anymore. We now don't have to seek the status and fame of the world anymore. We don't run after this anymore. And the victory that overtakes this is our faith in Christ. Our faith in what he tells us. Our faith in who he says we now are. I love this quote by Danny Aiken. He says this, This doesn't mean that we don't struggle with these anymore, but it does mean that we are no longer consumed by them. 
We aren't consumed by what we don't have, the lust of the flesh and eyes, or by what we do have, the pride of life. We obey God out of love for him and because we believe what he has done and what he has come to do. Whenever it says we have faith, y'all, this is an active faith. This literally says once again that I'm looking at God's word and I'm saying, God, I'm gonna trust what you say over what I feel. I'm gonna believe you whenever you tell me to live this way. I'm gonna live the way that you tell me to live. I'm gonna have faith in that. And that faith is what overcomes the feelings. That faith is what overcomes the old you. And y'all, to kind of tie this passage together, I want you to see something. All of this throughout this passage is active. There's nothing that's past tense. There's nothing that's previous. Everything is active. The idea first, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ. This word believe is this idea of believing. You continually, you believe this, you believe this. Not, you know, I believed this at some point in my life. This is, I'm day in and day out believing and living for this. The idea of of active love, of loving God and people through words, deeds, and actions. This isn't a, you know, I remember that one time I did this or this one time I went on this mission trip is this is my lifestyle. I'm actively loving the body. I'm actively loving God. This idea of obedience and this faith that overcomes is, is this thing that constantly we are overcoming the world. Constantly we are overcoming the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're constantly overcoming it because of the faith that we have in Christ. And y'all, as we do this, assurance will grow as we continue in our faith. As we live this out, assurance will continue to grow as we live out our faith. But one thing we know, our assurance is not based on something in the past. It's based on something in the present. You can say, hey, I followed Jesus whenever I was this age, and that's great. That's great to know that. But the bigger question is, what are you doing now? You can't say, man, Jesus really was my Lord and Savior, and I lived for him well for those two years, but now I'm just kind of in a four-month hiatus from my faith. That's not the way faith works. That's not the way a relationship with Christ works. And while I'm not saying that you're not saved, I'm saying you're not going to find assurance while you're in that state. Assurance can only be found as we look at these three tests. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you love God in the church? And do you obey God's commands? And y'all hear me clearly. Doubts will creep in. But whenever doubts creep in, if you look at the activity of your faith and how God is working in you, you will see I'm living out my belief, albeit imperfectly. I'm loving God's people and I'm loving him and I'm being obedient. And you'll find your assurance as you walk with the Lord. Once again, it's not based on something in the past. This is based on something in the present, based on what Jesus Christ has done for us and resting in that, but also living in light of that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, as always, we thank you, God, for your word. God, I thank you for 1 John just in its entirety, Lord, and how it really gives us the blueprint for what does it look like? What does it look like to really know you? What does it look like to really be born of you. And God, as I know we've looked at different things, I know as we've gone back to the Old Testament and we've looked at you as the prophet, as the priest, and as the king, and as as we've looked at, at really our love and our obedience to you, Father, I pray tonight that we would examine ourselves. God, that we would test our own hearts. Your desire is for us to know that we have eternal life in your name, and the prescribed method that you give us is this. 
And so, Father, I pray tonight, help us search our hearts, help us search our minds, and, Lord, help us be honest with ourselves. Father, I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all, as usual, I just want to give you some prompts and ask you this. The first is this. If you can walk through this and you go, you know what, Merrick, I, I'm assured of my salvation. I'm living in this. I, I see these marks in my life. I'm, I, I know that, this is, that, that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and it's evident in the way that I live, the way I love, the way I obey. I would tell you that's great. That should be encouraging. And I would tell you, keep up the act of faith. Keep living it out. Praise the Lord for that. You're not doing that in your own strength. Secondly, I would tell you, maybe you say, Merrick, I'm, I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but I know one of those areas you talked about I really am struggling in right now. The beauty of 1 John is chapter 1 is really talking about the sin in our lives and how, how we can't have it, but also if we do sin, Jesus is there. All we have to do is come to him and repent, and he says he will forgive us. And so maybe tonight you go, I'm not loving the body well. I'm not obeying God well. Maybe you know there's an area in your life you're just holding on to. You need to get rid of it. I want to encourage you tonight to repent of that. Lastly, maybe tonight, or if you say, you know what, I've, I feel like I've been a believer for a while, but you're looking at these tests and you're like, I just don't know if these really are evident in me. I don't really know if these are evident in me. Or you may say, I know that these aren't evident in me. What I want to ask you tonight is, will you reassess your own heart? Will you look at yourself? Will you test yourself? Will you examine yourself and see if you really are of the faith? And I would ask you this. Have you repented, really? Have you repented of your sin and claimed Jesus as Savior, but have you also surrendered to him as your Lord and as your King? Because tonight you can do that. I want to encourage you while you're sitting there to be praying, to be thinking about that once again. Ask the Lord to show you your heart. I'll be in the back if you want to come talk. But whether you're sitting, whether you want to stand and praise the Lord, I want to encourage you to respond however you feel led to do so.